Today's episode is so dear to my heart, and you're going to hear a lot about peace in making huge life decisions. And if you want more of that, my dear, and my life coaching throughout that, get yourself the Elegant Excellence Journal today. We walk through how to get clear on what you want in your life, cultivate a life with the balance that feels good to you, learn how to self-coach yourself as you spend more intentional time with the most important person in your life and the number one person who has the best and right advice for you, yourself. But with me as your life coach in a process I've been curating since 2014 that has blessed thousands of people with five-star reviews, so go to elegantexcellencejournal.com and choose your beautiful fine art cover today and join us on the journey to feeling good more often. You're welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hilary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome in advance. Well, friend, since we hung out here last, we're officially pregnant. (laughs) We got the call on Friday that our first embryo transfer worked, and I had a lot of peace heading into that day. I actually shared my journal entry, my Elegant Excellence journal entry from that morning in my pinned stories. You can find that on my feed. And a mantra that came to me the night before in a post on my feed, I'll put that in the description. But those are anchors for me that show I felt a lot of peace the whole two-week wait. Not peace that this would work this time, I really didn't know, but peace that it would work one of the times, in the right time. And we've definitely been nervous, really because it's such a huge financial commitment, needing to be able to figure out how to afford childcare as an entrepreneur, how to make more money in less hours so you have the hours to see your child. That's really where all of my anxiety around it is from. But pretty immediately, we just felt joy, confidence, focus, drive. It's still scary, but I think we are so excited that at a level that's just not real until it happens, that I'm surprised I'm not feeling as much terror as I thought it was. There's just that excitement is the stronger emotion. And so for anyone who is scared right now to do something, a great Elegant Excellence Journal prompt is to Envision how excited you would feel after you'd actually done it. Made the career change, the move. Really, there is so much excitement that comes when we do the thing. And it's wild how I know that. And yet the fear before is what I've carried in so many ways throughout this experience for years. And it was just... I wouldn't say it was instant. It was hitting us. It took us maybe 10 minutes, I feel like, to sort of process that call, which I shared a little bit on my feed. And I feel like other than that, about 10 minutes, it was pretty instantaneous, just the excitement. But I also share that nervousness that's still there because I feel like Most of the time, people just share how excited they are, especially around um, pregnancy. And I think it's normal to also be very afraid. And I think it's very personal what each person's deep fear is about parenthood or whatever you're experiencing in life. But 
Honestly, mine is around finances and burnout. I'm not worried we won't be great parents, that we won't love parenting. I'm not bracing for loss in the next nine months. I just don't know how the math adds up with the hours in the day and the bills to pay. And so with my faith, I am just drawing even nearer to God and asking for help, to be honest, asking for guidance because we do believe he called us to this and therefore he has a plan. And even though I don't see it right now, and that is so scary, just as I work to have peace in saying yes to children, to saying yes to surrogacy, and I'll share more on that in this episode, I worked to have peace in one of our embryos working. And now I'm working to have it in that we'll have the provision we need to care for ourselves and our child. So whatever stage you're at in life today, if you are fearful about what's next, you are not alone. (laughs) And if you want to work to choose more peace and faith in that area, whatever it is for you, I am on that journey with you literally every day, all throughout the day right now. So between the podcast and Instagram stories, we can be on that journey together in this season, even if it is different circumstances that we are journeying through. So where we left off last week, if you missed that episode, you can go back and re-listen. I started from my first egg freezing appointment and that first idea of that while single before I even met my husband through creating our third embryo after Lots of unsuccessful rounds of IVF and the trauma of feeling terrified it might not work. And that was just after we were married in early 2019 that we kind of left off. So I would say there's really been three very distinct journeys within our fertility journey to make decisions around, to pray, to know what the right decision was, to not regret it, make a decision we wouldn't regret, not make the wrong decision. So the first was embryo freezing, which is really where the trauma was, the loss, the terror that it won't work, the lack of control, the expenses getting higher and higher. Then second was deciding on surrogacy. That was a second phase that came really after we had done all of that. And then third, at the same time as that, we were also deciding if we did for sure want kids. And I'm going to do a separate episode on that because I really think on how to make big life decisions, whether career or moving, I felt like I walked away with some wisdom to share on that topic. And there's so many things that feel huge in life and you just don't know the right answer. And sometimes it feels like everyone else knows their answer but you and why do I just not know and how do you get there? So we will have that conversation as well. But Today, we're going to talk about the second part of that. How did the decision to do surrogacy get on our heart? And I want to repeat something that I said last week, which is, sweet friend, I am going to share my story and I need you to decide for yourself in advance that you are not going to let it breed fear in you. It might be a word for you. This one episode might be what someone hears three years from now and it changes the story of their family. It makes them feel called to surrogacy. It also may not be the right path for you, may not apply to you. And just because it's the story that was right for my family does not mean the story that that it's the story that's right for all families. If you're trying to decide what to do for yours, if you made a different choice in the past, you know, the right call for someone is to leave a marriage and for someone else, it's to rebuild a marriage. 
and only you can know what's right for you and that you're coming to your decision from a place of love over fear and faith over security. So you will hear me share how many hours I prayed, journaled, grappled with this decision for weeks, for months, for years. And you could hear the wisdom in why I made my decision and in your heart, for reasons you can't explain, not feel that it's right for you. And both of those can be true. But I really want you to notice that fear was never my predominant emotion. And I'm not saying that in like a brag your shaming way, like hair toss. I just didn't really experience fear because fear is so huge. Um, so many of us wrestle with it. In so many areas of my life, I wrestle with it. And as I even said today, I'm still feeling fearful around finances and work and childcare and how all of that will unfold. But I'm just wanting to be really honest that my decision to choose surrogacy was more about peace and faith. And I believe that from that energy, you will be guided to the right path for you. And with a supernatural peace and a deep confidence, even if you don't have anyone in your life to look around and say, here's what my friends do. If you, if you like me, have no one in your life who can give you advice on this and you are feeling alone in it, as I have so many times and I'll talk about that, I really think being able to come from the place of peace and faith and that being what I was seeking is what gave me so much more confidence than if I had just been terrified and bracing and so fearful the whole way. And I'll try to explain what that looked like and felt like. I also, second caveat, want to acknowledge anyone for whom IVF hasn't worked. And I would just ask you as you listen to pray over your heart that you not second guess yourself that you trust you had the wisdom you were meant to at that time, that you did what you were meant to, and that a what if story doesn't breed in your heart, what if we had done surrogacy, et cetera. Um, last week, I invited you to submit any questions that you had about this process, and T wrote in to say, my husband and I did seven retrievals, two transfers that resulted in two chemical pregnancies. So I believe a chemical pregnancy, I'm just filling anyone in who doesn't know this speak, I believe a chemical pregnancy is like at first it shows that you were pregnant, but it doesn't really progress to the point where it ends up being considered a miscarriage. I believe it's like your hormone levels rise. Um, and so that was something I, I didn't really even know a couple years ago. She said, heart-wrenching. I'm still grieving today. And the last one was two years ago. We have no more money for egg donation, so we had to stop. I feel very few people talk about what happens when IVF does not work out the way you hoped and you do not want to go the adoption route. I know this is not your experience, but I wish someone would talk about it. So T, I just wanted to read that to really honor you because I know you aren't alone in that. And as you said, a lot of people don't talk about it. I can't share that it's my experience, but I want someone else to hear that they aren't alone in hearing your experience. And in what you shared, it touches on so much of what we talked about last week that you know, not everyone feels called to adoption. I had a conversation with an old friend in my DMs just in the last week that her husband doesn't feel called to adoption. She does, but it's the end of the road for him. Um, that to even be able to financially move forward with IVF is a gift, that it's so expensive that sometimes continuing on to the next step and the next step just isn't an option, whether that's egg donation, surrogacy, or adoption. And the truth that 
fertility does not always work, even with medical help. And I have friends for whom that was the case. T, uh, their names are Danny and Mara, and I will link their final blog post about it in the description. I imagine they probably had other blog posts preceding it, but that's the one that that I pulled up for you. So you could just uh, read someone else's story to know that you aren't alone. I also had a conversation with another personal friend last week. She messaged to say, how grateful she was for last week's episode as she's in her 30s and they're not sure if they want kids, but they built their dream home in the last handful of years. And so financially, IVF won't be possible for them to extend that window while she is still in these fertility years or get assistance if they need it. And she has medical reasons why she knows it may be harder for her. So she's very aware of their of the reality that they don't have those finances. And we were talking about the fact that you have to trust your life has evolved in the right order and timing for you. Jeremy and I put our money into IVF and surrogacy. So we can't buy a house. We're very intimidated by the cost of childcare, et cetera. But we weren't thinking about buying a house anywhere in that time. We stumbled into this IVF journey with one appointment I had for the idea before I even met him. Meanwhile, my friend and her husband weren't planning on building their dream house. One door opened, it led them to move, and then they stumbled upon this property, and it all felt very kismet. And now for both couples, the finances are what they are. And she would torture herself if she fixated on, what if I thought about IVF years ago? As I would if I kept thinking, What if I hadn't done this and had all of this money instead? Like maybe I could have been a Kourtney Kardashian who we talked about last week and conceived and carried naturally and saved all this money and had more options and less stress and anxiety for our life. So for anyone who listening who can't afford IVF or the next step in fertility or whose journey has ended without a child, I hope I can share my story with you as a fellow woman, fellow human, and that you can observe the beauty and the blessing and the trauma and the fear in mine and in yours and the actions and outcomes can be different while the emotion is the same. And the latter is what we relate on and why we both feel less alone when we have these conversations. So how did the decision to do surrogacy get on our heart? It was not something we were talking about while going through the embryo creation, but I imagine that somewhere after that first failed in our mind round. Some people would be phenomenally grateful to get one embryo, but because that wasn't our expectation, it felt like a failed round and very scary. I have to imagine somewhere after that, the seed was planted. The idea began in my mind because when you just get one and you were expecting more and you thought this was a backup and now you're being faced with, wait, is this, could I maybe already be too late? And then you do more rounds and you get none and you get none. And somewhere in all of those months, I mean, this was from August right before we eloped to late February after we got back from our wedding. So it was six months of only having one embryo and fearing that was all we might have. And so I believe I started thinking, what is the best chance we have if there's only one? And I didn't really know anything about surrogacy. I'd never known anyone personally who had had that experience. And I feel like in the last five years, we've seen it a lot more in celebrity culture. I mean, Sarah Jessica Parker and Nicole Kidman use surrogates, but I don't think 
many people remember or realize or really know that. I could be wrong, but I feel like Kim Kardashian, which was five years ago in 2018, Gabrielle Union, Priyanka Chopra, Khloe Kardashian, Paris Hilton, Chrissy Teigen. It seems to me like we've had a lot more in the last five years. And obviously I'm noticing them because that's my story, but I can't think of any earlier than that other than Sarah Jessica and Nicole and their kids are all teenagers, I think. And I looked into it and the data confirms it has been on the rise in the last five years. So it's not just because I've been focusing on it. But in 2018, I wasn't seeing it in my life. I didn't know or follow anyone on Instagram. Kim was the only celebrity at that time, and that was unfolding just as we were there, and I don't relate myself to Kim Kardashian in any way. Um, But in 2006, I had seen an episode of The Oprah Show about surrogacy. I know it's 2006 because I Googled it. I was like, when was that? There are only three episodes of the Oprah Winfrey show that I remember. And I loved that show. I used to watch it all the time. The first one is there was some sort of, I think tsunami is the word, in some far off country beach town that Nate Berkus, her interior design expert, and his husband were at this fancy resort when this tsunami hit and his husband died and he's on the show talking about it. And it's just the two of them sitting on stage and he's describing what happened. They were both clinging to this palm tree and a huge wave came and he's, he, he sort of pauses. He's just like, and, and she finishes his sentence and she says, and, and he let go and Nate corrects her. And he says, he didn't let go. He would never have let go. Like he was fighting with everything he had. It pulled him away. And that has stayed with me. I mean, I didn't Google the year of that, but I feel like that was like 15 years ago. For some reason, that phrase, he let go. No, he didn't let go. The second one, I think was even earlier than that. There was a New York Times article called, I believe titled, Truly Madly Deeply. And it was a woman who was talking about the fact that she was more in love with her husband than her kids. That if heaven forbid... She lost a member of her family. She would, it would be more traumatic to lose her husband and to have to go through that alone with all of the children than to lose a child, but to have a partner to go through that with. And I completely related to what she was saying. And the rest of the audience of mothers was completely against her and was like, this is the worst person you've ever had on this show. How dare she say that she loves her husband more than her children? And I was so young at the time, but I was like, that that's how I feel. I, I always thought at that point in my life that I wanted kids, but I was like, I want a partner and it's coming out of that. And I was already aware at such a young age, other women want to be a mother first. They maybe want the wedding and all of that, but like the mother is the big thing. And for me, the wife was the big thing. And like the children came out of that. And then there's this third episode. And I remember I was in my apartment in Long Island City. Like I, it was an afternoon. I had come back from an audition. It's just like seared into my memory. This episode about surrogacy. And I just thought it was so beautiful. The idea of these two families coming together and both being blessed from it. And I, I mean, I had zero residence of maybe I'll do that someday. 
But for some reason, it just imprinted on my heart. It stuck with me. And that was 13 years before going through IVF that I lived in that apartment. And so I believe that God planted that seed there for a reason. I mean, I can't explain why else that episode out of hundreds that I watch and the other two make sense because I'd always desired a husband. I mean, ever since I was in high school, that was my number one thing. I could not understand why anyone would be against the gay community because I was like, you're telling someone that they always have to be alone and they're never allowed to be in love. Like that's the cruelest thing I can imagine. What kind of a cruel God would do that? It was like my very first, you know, social justice instincts were around. I desire more than anything that partner, but surrogacy, like that's so random. No other episode, like what? No, I don't know. No other episode about business or, or creativity, anything. So In my faith, for for my personal faith, I think God sees your whole life and he can plant seeds so much earlier than you realize. And then, you know, I said last week that so much of our stories are shaped by the other stories that we are near or see or experience. What we were told growing up, who we knew, what their experiences were, just in all of life. You're shaped because you saw addiction up close or didn't. You grew up in a racially diverse neighborhood or didn't. You saw all relationships end in divorce. You saw long, happy marriages everywhere you looked. And that creates beliefs and thoughts that lead to our actions and why we do things. So in 2018 to 2019, when we were going through that embryo freezing process, that Oprah episode, that one story was literally all I knew. And without knowing the science on it, I just started having the subconscious thought at some point Surely someone who has proven they can carry a baby to term without complications and who's younger than me has to have a higher percentage that this would work. And then from 2020 on, I started having present day stories unfold in my life over the next few years of so many women in my life who had issues with carrying pregnancies. Now, That's different than miscarriage. Miscarriage is usually because of chromosomal abnormalities. And with IVF, if you have an embryo, you've you've already determined that it is chromosomally normal. So that is far less of a concern. There were so many people in my life that had struggled with miscarriage, uh, taking a really long time to get pregnant, uh, you know, experiencing that season of infertility. Again, that's different, the conception part. And sadly, very common. But issues of carrying is a lot less common, and yet they kept coming up in my life. One of my friends had three miscarriages in three years, much younger than me, very healthy. The embryos were, or the, I don't even know if embryo is the right word, I guess embryo would be, the the testing came back that they were chromosomally normal. So they weren't trying to figure out, should we move on to IVF? If this is an issue with the embryos, it wasn't an issue with the embryos. It was an issue with her carrying. And it took three years and three pregnancies for them to try to figure out what it was that was causing this complication. Separate friend had a stillbirth when she, her body went into septic shock. She had no reason prior to that to know she was high risk, no history of disease or illness or anything, just completely shocking that this would happen. Another had a stillbirth that couldn't be explained, then had an IVF round that didn't work, 
um, just just multiple challenges, heartbreakingly back to back. One of my team members um, had trouble getting pregnant again, not because of the embryo, but because of the carrying. Had multiple miscarriages. They were able to identify the issue was her challenge in carrying. So she was able to take medication right away and they were able to get it to work and have their baby. I had a colleague that had had miscarriages, went into IVF, didn't have trouble making embryos. I think they had like maybe 10 embryos that they were able to make, but did two rounds of IVF that didn't work with her carrying. So then they moved on to a surrogate. Someone in my extended family did two rounds of IVF that didn't work and then moved on to a surrogate. In my DMs last week, someone in our community did four rounds of IVF that didn't work and moved on to a surrogate. And in every case, these women were younger than me, they were active, they were healthy, they didn't have any pre-existing health conditions. And it really created a humility in me. We talk about this a lot inside What Makes Women Feel Beautiful, my immersive teaching, but we cannot judge health from the outside. That is a fat phobic belief that we have been marketed to because it saves people money, it makes people money, a belief that we all need to be rewiring, which is one of the many things we do together inside what makes women feel beautiful so we can be kinder to ourselves, kinder to other women, kinder mothers in the beliefs that we're passing on, etc. But a lot of my story is spiritual for lack of a better way to say it, but I didn't feel fearful when I heard those other stories. I felt humbled. You know, a feeling comes from a thought and for whatever reason, my thoughts were never picturing me miscarrying, picturing me with the trauma. It was a vision of humility, like the opposite of privilege. Just because I look thin and quote, seem healthy, I have no reason to think I would be, quote, better than any of these other women in my ability to carry a pregnancy. I have no reason to think, oh, that wouldn't happen to me. I've been humbled that you can be in the 5%, the 1% of people that something doesn't work for or is much harder for. You've seen your friends be there. And so, again, for me, it was not in fear but in humility. That could be you. And you won't know until you try. And if you don't have many tries, then the stakes are so high. So we eventually did get to our first goal of three embryos. And they say that's about a 95% chance of live birth. That's the phrasing of it. And in 2017, sitting in that office alone, dating Jeremy, that felt like a pretty good backup plan, 95%. But I think in a fertility journey, Any trauma, any loss makes you more fearful that it won't work, that you'll have more loss, more trauma. I've heard that from so many of my friends. You get that wake-up call, again, that humility, this might not work. And in 2017, it was years away. It was like, oh, if we want to have kids and we aren't getting pregnant, we'll have this awesome backup plan. But now by 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022, as we're realizing we don't have that many chances and these are our best chances by far rather than trying to conceive organically with five or six year older eggs and we're spending years grappling with whether or not we want kids and then what if we decide after all that work and personal excavation that we do really want them 
and then we can't have them. So while you're deciding, you're also sort of thinking, if I come to a yes, how can I have the most guarantee that I won't have done all this work to get my heart really to this excited place for a baby and then be devastated? And you get more clear that 95% means you have 20 families and one walks away without a baby. And it has to happen to someone or else the number would be 100%. And I'm watching my friends, friend after friend, end up in that proverbial 5%, that proverbial 1% in their own different stories and scenarios. And I just felt so humbled. We could be the one in 20 for whom three wasn't enough. So how do I increase our chances? So our first doctor said it was about a 5% better chance if we used a surrogate. And of course, those factors can't all go into one equation, but when you've been told 95%, then you're thinking, okay, well, does that extra 5% mean we're nearer to 100%? Or without that extra 5%, are we nearer to 90? So is it now two in 20 couples leaving without ever having a baby? And if I was already sitting in the humility that I could be the 5%, then why wouldn't I take every extra percentage I can to actually have a baby? And I would think through how it would go. If I carry and we do the first embryo transplant with me and it doesn't work, the doctor will say, there's no need to panic. So we move on to a second embryo transfer with me carrying. And if it doesn't work the second time, now we're down to one embryo. And again, I've seen this in my own extended family. It took two times of embryo implants not working for them to determine it was an issue with her fallopian tubes. And every friend that I had seen, they, they either didn't have an explanation or they all had a different explanation. It's not like if everyone just had a fallopian tube issue and I was like, okay, let me just get my fallopian tubes checked. But if it was that simple, we would just be checking everyone's, you know, fallopian tubes before we do this procedure. But instead it was different reasons in every case or unexplained. So I'd seen within my own extended family, you can go through two and then they can, they, I've, I've known someone this happened, then they can tell you that it's not going to work for you and you should move on to surrogacy. <laughs> or they can't explain why it hasn't worked for you and now you're moving on to surrogacy. But now we're starting the surrogacy process and that long journey of being on the wait list and the matching and the medical workups and all of the things with all of the anxiety and the pressure that we just have one embryo left after knowing that two already failed, I mean, that was just so traumatizing to think about. Like, why would I put myself through that? So what is the downside to surrogacy? Why would you not do something that increases your chances of having a baby? There are four in my experience. The first one is money. It is so expensive. If we hadn't gone this route... I would be so much less stressed about when the baby actually gets here, how we're going to afford childcare, you know, because I work very full time to keep my business running. But you have to put the horse before the cart. Yes, we're nervous about the finances now when we have a child, but we had to start by at least getting the child here. And I know the examples we see most are celebrities because that is who is in the press, but the women in my comments and DMs who have used surrogacy or are in that process right now or in exploring it, 
they're not millionaires. Anyone, quote, normal who uses a surrogate could have had a house or is taken on debt, has drained their savings, has chosen not to invest in grad school or starting a business, is not as safe as they could be in retirement at the age they are, but they prioritize having a child. And I think so much of the judgment around surrogacy is tied to the idea that people who do it have so much money, they can just hire whoever they want to do whatever they want. And yeah, I'm sure there are some of those. But if you listen to surrogacy podcasts, you will hear the 99% of real, average, ordinary people who are taking on medical debt, in essence, to do IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, adoption, You have to be so exceptionally wealthy for this to not have a stunning impact on your financial safety and future and everyday spending. So when you read articles about marriage, entrepreneurship, motherhood, are you immediately thinking about Paris Hilton and other multi-multi-millionaires or billionaires? No. You're thinking about your friends. You're thinking about the majority of Americans, the majority of people. So when you hear about surrogacy, picture the majority. You know how tight your finances are. It may be the same for them. Second downside to surrogacy is not having the experience of caring. So I think this is another reason there's a lot of judgment around surrogacy that is so inappropriately dismissive of many women's deep grief over not caring. And the judgment is because a lot of women, I would say most women, do not like being pregnant and the postpartum experience. They find it so devastatingly hard that if that's you, I think there's a sense of, well, must be nice, wish I didn't have to do that. And I so get, validate, and honor that. It is such a hard, 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 hard thing for so many, many, many people. Yes, and it is also the greatest miracle in the world. A human develops inside another human. It's happened since the beginning of humanity, in humans, in animals. It's personally the number one reason I believe there's a God, because the teeny tiny details it takes to make a life, as wild as the concept of a higher being is, it is less believable to me that all this magic just happened randomly. So if you have been pregnant and hated it and could go back to the decision to never have been, to have not had any of that experience... I think it's a harder call for most people than you might think because it's both hard and magic. And you're missing the hard, but you're also missing the magic. And our brains have a natural negativity bias for a whole host of psychological and neurological reasons I won't go into. But if you didn't like being pregnant, you are far more likely to remember and focus on that than the parts that were magical, like being able to see the progress of your baby with your stomach growing, to feel kicks, to talk to the baby, to breastfeed. I mean, even if you had a really hard time breastfeeding, there were also magic moments in that, or may have been for you. But we tend to focus on what was harder. And I think it's an interesting exercise to say, what are all of the magic parts of this? that my brain maybe has focused on the, the 
hard parts of it, but what are the magic parts that I am so grateful for? And then there are people who love being pregnant, which describes a lot of surrogates. They feel so purposeful, gorgeous, alive, thriving, magical, powerful, divine. So there's many people, if that's you, who will feel so sad for someone who never gets that experience, whether they choose to be child-free by choice, fertility journey doesn't happen for them, they choose adoption, they end up in surrogacy. Coincidentally, today, this morning, a friend messaged me and said, yesterday, I was talking to a friend who said she'd love to be a surrogate. She feels called to it, it's on her heart. She, quote, loves labor and delivery, and quote, wants to be pregnant and deliver again, but doesn't want to have another child. She's also a very successful business owner and most definitely does not need to do it for the money. And for a lot of women who use surrogates, it is a deep grieving that they will never get that. Gabrielle Union has spoken about this. I followed a colleague on Instagram who was using a surrogate who was very transparent about just how much grief and loss she felt at not getting that experience. So many women feel rage, anger, hatred towards their bodies for stealing from them this little girl dream, the maternity shoot, the cradling your bump, everyone smiling at you as you walk down the street, asking when you're due, the subway car sees part when you enter the subway car and somebody gives you their seat, like this uniquely female experience that your mother had, your grandmother had, your sisters had. So when you see someone share that they're using a surrogate, this could be one of the deep griefs of their life to miss out on something that your body could do that they feel in fear or have been told their body can't. So instead of seeing her as privileged, she may see you as privileged. For me, I felt so much more gratitude than grief. And I think a big reason is that I didn't have that window of trying to conceive where I was desperate to be a mom right now, nor did I have miscarriages and the trauma and pain of that, nor failed implants where I was terrified that it wasn't going to work, nor physical trauma like cancer that I had already gone through. For me, I just kept thinking this could so easily not have happened for me. If I hadn't had that one conversation with my financial planner, if I hadn't met my husband that year, if I hadn't changed careers and created more financial security for myself so that I could afford this, like I just focused on what I could have lost, not what I may have lost by going this route. I think for me, it felt more, and it still feels today more like I had a chance and and I so easily could have not had that chance if things happened for me two years later in my life that I was just so grateful for that, that I was more able to make peace with the smaller losses of carrying or money if I didn't have to endure the greater loss of not having had a child. And it also just felt very clear to me, it's an experience of nine months that yes, I'm missing out on some things, but it is that versus an experience of a lifetime. And I wasn't going to prioritize the nine months, obviously, if choosing that meant I had a lower likelihood of getting that lifetime experience. The third reason not to do surrogacy would be trust. Cassie wrote in and shared, oh, Cassie, my heart hurts saying this. Our second daughter was stillborn in 2021. 
Doctors think it might be related to an autoimmune disease I have, but aren't sure. I mean, again, just isn't that wild how much we don't know? Like they cannot explain, they aren't sure what's happening with her body after a stillbirth. They said we could try again, but I'm terrified. Like that makes complete sense, Cassie. I feel like we should just be thankful for our healthy five-year-old, but we, including my daughter, long for another baby. The doctor mentioned surrogacy, but it feels so overwhelming. How did you decide you could trust someone to carry your baby and keep them safe as best they can? I've also heard people say that surrogacy isn't always fair to the carrier. Like maybe it's taking financial advantage. Is there any truth to that? I just don't know what to do. Thank you for sharing your story. I don't personally know anyone who's gone through a surrogacy journey, and I really appreciate your honesty and willingness to share. Congratulations on the wonderful next step of your journey. And then someone submitted the anonymous question. How do you deal with the idea that the baby only knows this other woman from being inside her through pregnancy? That heart-wrenching fact that then baby will be separated from the only being they've known so intimately. So to especially this second question, my first reply here is, have you ever asked this of adoptive parents? And I'm generalizing here, but most people who have concerns about surrogacy tend to be more conservative Christians who are also very pro-adoption, especially as their answer to being anti-abortion. And I'm going to say some things about adoption here, and I want to be clear up front. Adoption is beautiful. And we talked about fear earlier. I need you, sweet friend, to make the active choice not to live in fear if you're considering adoption. But the purpose of this episode is to educate people on surrogacy. So in order to do that well, I have to tell some other hard truths to highlight intellectual inconsistencies that are very prevalent in culture. But again, we're not coming from a spirit of fear here. And I'm going to share with you a powerful example of that in adoption in a minute. But if you have these thoughts about surrogacy, then you have to acknowledge that they are 100 times more present in adoption, a practice that as a culture we have embraced and celebrated throughout humanity. So I say this to show that we celebrate a far more traumatic story. And therefore, to be against surrogacy because you think there's trauma there is just not a logical concern. So in adoption, most of the time, you have a baby who was unwanted by their biological mother. The whole time they were carried, this mother may not have wanted them, their own DNA. Much of the time, adoption is tied to addiction, poverty, lack of education and resources. There is usually a reason why the birth mother has been deemed either by the state or by herself unequipped to care for a baby. So it's highly unlikely that mom is using clean makeup, non-toxic home products, or eating organic fruits and vegetables. You have no idea if someone in her home is smoking, if she's smoking. You have no idea the genetics of the baby's DNA. Is there addiction or illness? You know, it's not just the gestation, but the whole DNA of the child. Sometimes adoption occurs when Child Protective Services steps in and forcibly removes a newborn from a parent that has been flagged in the hospital as appearing to be someone with mental instability or addiction issues. There may be a wailing from the mother 
as her own child is taken from her, and that may be those child's first life. There is no control, and there is trauma. And again, we celebrate the beauty that is adoption. But by comparison, in surrogacy, you have a healthy, thriving woman who loves being a mom to her own children and explicitly does not desire any more children, which is why she's volunteered to carry one for someone else. So there is no trauma in that parting. It's not her DNA. There is not that emotional attachment. She is elected to be pregnant and is feeling deeply fulfilled and delighted by this experience. So there is abundant joy and peace surrounding that fetus for nine months. Only about 1% of those who apply are accepted to become a surrogate. There is a rigorous process that includes with any reputable agency, of which there are many, an in-depth background check of her and her partner, if she has one or whoever she shares a home with, a financial check for her and her partner if she has one. So you have to be financially stable to become a surrogate. So to Cassie's question, if you're working with a reputable agency, you have to be financially secure to be a surrogate. The implication people are doing this because they need money, you can be on the surrogate journey for 12 to 18 months before you're really compensated. It can be a long road to applying, approval, matching. Sometimes the parents haven't done IVF yet. You have to wait for them to go through rounds of that. It may not work. They have to do other rounds. I've heard surrogates on podcasts point out that you can be doing medication, traveling to to go do your check. You know, our surrogate flew here to do her um, her check with our doctor. Like you can be doing so much long before any real compensation comes in. So it does not make financial sense if money was your number one goal, you would do something else. And again, when you listen to podcasts of surrogates, you hear story after story of why they felt called to help another family. It is a deep mission and purpose. You know, maybe I will share the recording because I was filming it when we called both of our parents and then our surrogate or the three people we called immediately on Friday when we heard um, to tell her that it had worked. And maybe I will share that on my profile. And if I do, I will add it to uh, the description here. But she was like, I just can't believe I get to bring this life. I'm so excited. And she and I have talked about how the number one most common anecdote you hear when listening to surrogacy stories is... The moment the baby was placed in the parents' arms, I turned to my husband and said, I have to do this again. I think it's one of the most meaningful life experiences for those surrogates. I think the way some people feel about serving their country or being a kindergarten teacher or a nurse or a pastor, these women feel about getting to bring life. Our match coordinator at our agency was a surrogacy twice. People doing it more than once is common. And that's because they love the experience. It was such a positive experience. They want to do it again. So I love your heart and care and concern for these women, Cassie. Go listen to their hearts. Find surrogacy podcasts and get to know them. Get to know their stories. And if it's right for you, it will help you envision the heart and the story and the why uh, and the relationship 
of your future surrogate. So other things required to be in that 1% that are accepted, you have a home evaluation, a psychological screening by a licensed mental health provider, you have an in-depth physical examination by an OB, or in our case, our fertility doctor herself, including a review of all medical records and details of her previous births. So there's a lot of confidence once they're accepted into the program. And then in finding a match, both sides talk through what's important to them. If she only wants to be a surrogate for a cancer patient, she can be. It's illegal to charge more for a surrogate. So if she's open to being a surrogate for a celebrity, she's not getting paid more and she's choosing that she's comfortable with that match and I don't know, the increased security or whatever comes along with that. You have extensive legal agreements and you decide then if there are things you wanna stipulate for. Could you have a list of 20 things she needs to do every day? Sure. Now you have to have a surrogate who's also fine with that. So if that sounds like a miserable match to you, then you would decline it. But if a surrogate loves a checklist, is type A, is happy to use the beauty products you wanna send, the cleaning supplies you wanna send, If you wanna pay for her organic groceries, like that's all fine. In our case, I didn't wanna micromanage. I wanted to partner with someone who I just intuitively trusted. I have so much to do with running my business, preparing for a baby, figuring out what you're supposed to do with the baby once they get here. I just did not want to obsess over this area. And two things helped me get there. The first is last summer, we hired a doula for a consultation. One of my best friends had used her as her doula and she's one of my most health conscious friends. She had all these things that she did and didn't do in her pregnancy because she'd read that gluten can lead to ADHD in boys and this tincture helps with this and et cetera. So I thought, all right, this doula is gonna come with a whole list of do's and don'ts. And if my friend who knows so much more than me in this area trusted her, then so will I. And that consult was nothing like I expected. She basically said, what we know for sure to avoid in pregnancy, we know. It's the national guidelines, your OB will know, your surrogate will follow them. Anything else, we don't know because you can't ethically test on pregnant women so there isn't really data on anything else. What we do know is that lowering stress is one of the most helpful things for a healthy pregnancy. So if something stresses you out, then prioritizing that so you stress less is what matters. And I realized all she did was support my friend in all the things my friend was stressed about, not because the doula knew that in 2023, these were the best non-toxic guidelines for gestation. And this is a Brooklyn-based, low-tox, yoga teacher, doula, etc. Number two is at the same time, one of my other friends who is also incredibly health conscious was matched for adoption. And she and I were voice messaging every few days back and forth. And I realized as someone so much more health, clean living, knowledgeable than me, she was trusting God with this pregnancy. What they knew of the birth mother, this was probably the opposite of a low tox environment. And that's when I realized that you have 100 times more control, peace of mind, know the physical and the mental well-being, and so many things in surrogacy you do not have in adoption. And if all of these adoptive mothers have accepted that, then I could accept a fraction of it. So if you are considering adoption, again, I am not instilling fear. I am encouraging peace and faith. 
But if you're worried about it in surrogacy, it's a fraction of the reality in adoption. And how many adults do you know who are adopted, who are thriving, succeeding, healthy? I know so many. So we have proof that you do not need to fear in that area. Yes, we live in a society of plastics and pesticides, and I'm not being blasé about any of that, but we have also birthed humans since the beginning of time. And it's happening every day, all around the world, to women in poverty, without access to the internet, or modern medicine, or parenting or pregnancy books. And I think it can be easy to get swept up in the pressure of American society to create and raise the most perfect child to succeed without any issue, to be above everyone else on what in what makes women feel beautiful, I call the invisible staircase. Your kid should be smarter, more advanced, more talented, healthier than everyone else. But, you know, Oprah grew up in poverty and abuse and is one of the most successful women in America. So just by being born in a first world country, in a hospital, your child has so many more, which is, was not a dig at home births, by the way, I don't mean that. I just mean access to quality modern medicine. Your child has so many more advantages than the majority of the world. So I'm just choosing to be grateful for all my child has, not focusing on every sliver of not quite as close to perfection or control as I see in someone else's story. In addition, our surrogate is in the medical field, as are many. She's around doctors and medical professionals every day. She's got support around her at work. She has a huge family network of women all around her that live in the same town, multi-generational. She has the lived experience of carrying two totally healthy pregnancies. So she's got a lot that I don't have to make this a healthy pregnancy. And then number four, the last and biggest downside of surrogacy to me, honestly, is judgment. Every person I see share about using a surrogate on social media immediately, repeatedly gives caveats and defenses and explanations and braces for negativity and uneducated opinions and shame in a way that no other category of mother I am aware of does when it comes to announcing that she is having a child. And it is so insanely traumatizing and disgusting to a woman who has made this decision almost always because she's been through some level of trauma and fear in her fertility journey to then be shamed for choosing the best path available to her to have the child she desires. Is there anyone else you have followed other than a woman using a surrogate who has announced her pregnancy and then celebrated in stories? Woohoo, no hateful comments yet. Like, do you realize how insane that is? The happiest news of her life that she's been on such a long journey for and she's bracing someone else to shame and judge her? Why is she bracing? Because she's seen the women before her say the same in stories. So she knows it's what happens because she's read the comment section of real people, because she's read the comment section about celebrities, knowing she has the same condition or circumstance they did that led them to the decision and heard the way people have talked about them. And it's just entirely uneducated. 
and as far as I can tell, always in intellectual opposition to something else that person believes. If you are anti-abortion, then you can't be okay with babies birthed by women who did not want to be pregnant and against babies birthed by women who did want to be pregnant. You cannot be more celebratory about babies created in trauma because adoption really always has trauma. There is always heartbreak there and often created in less safe conditions for gestation than babies created in love with safety and support. You can't champion that you get to control women's bodies by forcing them to birth and control women's bodies by forcing them not to birth. (laughs) It makes you an intellectual hypocrite. You celebrate more babies being born, period. If you are for reproductive rights, You can't be for women being in control of whether they want to give birth in some cases, but not in all cases. You are for bodily autonomy and celebrate women's freedom, period. If you have ever celebrated a friend who adopted or asked a couple struggling with infertility if they're considering adoption or why don't they consider adoption, you can't be more in favor of a scenario with a woman who doesn't want to be pregnant than one who does. You can't think it's less problematic to be separated from your own DNA than to knowingly from the beginning not be attached because you know this is not your DNA. If you are fine with sperm donation, where someone's biological child is out there, I personally know someone who has now met, a man who has now met four of their teenage children from sperm donation. And we celebrate for those single women he helped who wanted to be mothers, for those couples where the man had low sperm count and wanted to become parents. I have never seen negative comments when a single celebrity announces that she is pregnant and obviously used a sperm donor. We don't have a problem with that. If you are fine with egg donation, one of my personal friends is doing their embryo implant this fall with her sister's donor eggs because my friend went through early menopause in her 30s and had no idea until it had already happened. If you are fine with blood donation, if like me, you signed up many years ago for Be The Match to donate bone marrow, if you're a match to save someone else's life, if you're fine with kidney donation, another friend of mine's husband, a father of four, got a life-saving kidney transplant from an anonymous donor in his 30s. A guy who had no connection to anyone, no one in his life had gone through this. He just heard about it, felt a call on his heart, and walked into a hospital to electively undergo surgery and permanently remove a somewhat vital organ, should something happen to the other kidney, to bless a family he would literally never know or meet. They didn't have a relationship. There was no compensation there. And meanwhile, it's usually kind of a loop I learned from her where in order to receive a donor, you have to bring someone else in as a donor. So my friend's mother in her 60s, maybe even her 70s, donated her kidney so her son-in-law could get a kidney. So we have elderly people electively going under surgery because they want to bring and save a life. If you are fine with all of that and celebrate any of that, then you 
can't just be bothered by this one other way to share the life in your body to help someone else live. Again, it's just intellectually out of integrity. This is not Handmaid's Tale, where a slave under duress in hideous conditions is raped while the woman watches. This has no relation to sex trafficking or prostitution or poverty. Now, are there some cases of that? Sadly, I'm sure there are. There are women married to serial killers. It happens. But when I announced I was engaged, no one left a comment that I shouldn't marry Jeremy because one time they read an article about a woman who married a serial killer. We don't catastrophize these other life scenarios, but most people I hear from have either not gone through the intellectual exercise of reconciling this with these other beliefs, or they have read one sensationalized story and then decided that they are the expert. This is a 30-year-old guy electing to donate a kidney. How beautiful. Or a 30-year-old woman electing to carry a pregnancy. How beautiful. Or a 30-year-old woman electing to register for the armed forces and risk her life at war for her country, for her people, for safety. How beautiful. Or a 30-year-old guy signing up to be a firefighter or a policeman to keep people safe knowing there are safer things they could choose to do to make a living. But this is what they feel called to do. How beautiful. Now, if after all of that, you still have questions and concerns around surrogacy, send me a DM and I will do my best to get back in dialogue with you. I really mean that. I've had a lengthy, respectful, educational conversation with one of you this week in DMs. If people are respectful and I have time when I see the message, I will always do my best to really invest the time and thoughtfully engage because that that's how any of us grow, right? Is really having those one-on-one conversations. If it's disrespectful, I will always block because that's not the vibe in our house for me or my guests. So yes, this is the fourth reason in my experience not to do surrogacy is fear of judgment. And I wasn't wrong to fear it, by the way, not that I thought I was, but my first announcement post that we've been on a fertility journey, I had three negative comments, one comment and two women who liked that comment, which means three people. Uh, Then our most recent pregnancy announcement, I had eight, one comment and seven likes, all eight of whom are all now 11 of whom, by the way, are immediately restricted, if not blocked. That means that no one else can see their comments because again, this is my house and I want to be the best hostess I can be. So I don't want someone leaving comments that trigger other people if I can help it uh, to create a safe space. So if it's restricted, I can see it, but no one else can which means I am lowering the volume on trauma where I am able to. So I replied to that one negative comment on our pregnancy post. There was hundreds of congratulatory comments, which was just amazing. It was so beautiful. I've read and replied to everyone and I will continue to do so. So I replied to this one woman, but I didn't think anyone would see it because there was hundreds of comments there. I wasn't thinking about that. And then the next day when I went back in, I was replying to more comments. 
There were 52 comments back to her and 71 likes on the first comment, all of which were positive. Over 200 internet aunties brought that same energy to our house and were like, no, you should not speak to this family this way. And I was sobbing. I went and shared something on my stories that's, that's pinned out about it. I had only thought about the negative comments coming. And because I was prepped for them, they absolutely still sting. They are never okay. No one should ever just be brushing them off. But they don't devastate me. I would not have been sobbing or crying or emotional about getting them. But it had never occurred to me. <laughs> that y'all would overwhelm those with 20 times more love and support to show them that judgment and shame are drowned out by how much love and joy we have. And I just want you to know how, how special that was. And I want you to know if you ever see a negative comment on any topic on someone's page, that it really is so valuable when we speak up and defend that person um, and, and speak up in love and solidarity and support. Like it matters. It matters to drown out the negativity. And it matters that those other seven people who were cowardly and just liked that post instead of making their own comment, that they see it was seven to 171. Like you're, you're in the minority here. This judgment and shame, this is not the, the garden party. This is not Dean Street Society. This is, this is not this crew. But anyway, in my prayer journaling about this over the years, I felt God say, this, this maybe came to me in the fall, honestly, because I think the judgment has been the, the greatest of all of these fears for so long. But finally around the fall, I was prayer journaling one night, listening to the song called Oceans on repeat that I would just listen to like hundreds of times for some reason as my like anthem as I was trying to come to peace with everything. And I, I felt God say, Hillary, what is your number one fear in this? Not having a child. What is your number two fear in this? Being judged for how you did that. So if I put it on your heart to carry a child, you would have been less afraid of being pregnant than of being judged. Which means the path I'm calling you to for your family is harder for you. Other people have been on the carrying path. That's what I had for their family. And they may think you have it easier. And maybe for them, that physical path was harder. But for you, this emotional path is harder. And the greater fear that you're having to overcome. And that spoke to me so deeply as true. And it also made me realize it would be preposterous to risk not having a child to avoid the judgmental opinions of others. So judgment, control during pregnancy, the experience of pregnancy, even the intense amount of money, none of them mattered more than having a child. And 
the math was the math. This was our best chance. And God had given me the lived experiences that he had. I had the humility to know I could be in the 5%. So if he'd sown this seed way back in 2006, then I could trust that this was the path he meant for us. And so it really was for me a decision of faith over fear, not fear that it wouldn't work the other way, but faith that it would work this way. Now, one can mean the other. You're lacking faith it would work if you carried. Or you're lacking faith that you would be as sure it would work if you carried. But lacking faith doesn't have to mean you have fear. It just means you have more faith in something else. And that energy is completely different that you're not operating out of the fear, you're operating because the faith over here is so strong and compelling. And I think there's another podcast episode here in all the ways I got to that faith because it's been so remarkable to me. And I'm still feeling it now that we're just four weeks into our pregnancy, which is very early. We were looking it up this morning. Our baby is the size of a poppy, size of a poppy seed, um, which... 10 days ago, they were microscopic and you couldn't see it to the human eye. So a a poppy seed is at least something, but that's so teeny tiny. And yet I have such peace. My doctor called us yesterday to tell us our HCG, which is a hormone level, is up to 288, which is a great number at this point in the pregnancy. And when she called, she said, I don't know if you've seen the email. And I said, oh, I didn't think to check. I've been working. I was literally on a Zoom call and I had to be like, I'm sorry, can you excuse me for a minute? My doctor's calling. So I said, I've been working. I I would have known the blood work was supposed to come back the day before. I actually really should have been looking on Monday to see if it arrived. And so by Tuesday, I should have been anxious, but I just haven't been on alert for updates. And I want that in other areas of my life. So I'm trying to learn from it so I can live in less fear and more faith throughout my life. So as I have more downloads on that, we will have that conversation. But that, my friend, is what led us to surrogacy. And I will briefly share that timeline as we close. I have so many more details that I'm hoping to post a YouTube series eventually with all of the videos that I have filmed over the years of my thoughts and experiences really for fellow IPs, intended parents who are on the surrogacy journey because I wished I could have found that more like daily vlog, not daily vlog, but like in real time vlog. But in broad strokes, I will close out with our timeline and my two biggest emotions uh, throughout. So, which I think may be surprising. So we got on the wait list for surrogacy on November 1, 2021. And we were told it would take about eight to 12 months to get a match. And around the 12 month mark last fall, we got our first match and we got a heads up about it that we shouldn't have. Um, Normally you just get an email. You're like, oh my gosh, we have a match. But coincidentally, we had not done some physical that we needed to at our fertility clinic. So they had reached out for us to schedule that. That was triggered because the surrogacy agency had sent over a match for our doctor to look at. And so then they happened to mention in the email, oh yeah, like we're looking into your match. And we were like, wait, what? (laughs) We thought we were just coming in for physicals. Wait, what? We have a match. So that gave us a little bit of time to kind of recenter for, if it was maybe like a week later before we actually got it to be like, okay, how are we feeling? What do we want to do here? So our big goal had been that we wanted to be within a four hour driving radius of our surrogate. 
So this goes back again to how our thoughts, beliefs, and actions are shaped by the stories in our lives. And yet again, for the millionth time in this episode, I'm going to say this is not to breed fear in anyone else. But our some of our best friends had a really traumatic experience um, a year and a half ago where their five-week-old ended up in the ICU because of um, being, maybe it wasn't even five weeks, um, anyways, being exposed to some um, nieces who had a cold and, you know, babies don't have an immune system and, and you know that they have a weakened immune system, but I think seeing our friends go through it and spend a traumatic week in the hospital because of COVID, he was not able to be there. She was completely by herself. He was away from the baby. They really didn't know at times if the baby was going to make it. Like it was just so much trauma. And so when something like that happens, you really are like, oh yeah, babies have no immune system. This feels so scary. Additionally, I had friends from college that um, had used a surrogate. And I said that I didn't really know anyone who had been through this. It's so wild. Again, the way things come through your path. I was logged on to, I am never on Facebook. I was logged in there for something so random. And the first post on my feed happened to be a gay friend I went to college with, haven't talked to in over a decade, who he and his husband had a baby with a surrogate and um, the and it was out of state. Like I think they were in California, the baby was in Iowa or something like that and was born two months early. So they missed the birth fly there. They were trying to finish building their house back in California. So now like one of them is with the baby. One of them is back at home. They don't get to be there together. None of their families around. And so I just had these, these two reasons why I was like, I don't want to have to be out of state and I don't want to have to get on a plane with a baby. Now we didn't find out until March of this year that well over 99% of intended parents get on a plane. And I think this goes back to something I said earlier about trusting the way your story unfolds. Because Jeremy and I were like, why why didn't they tell us that? Like when we said we wanted a four hour radius, it would have been 16 months earlier at this point. Why didn't they tell us, okay, that's going to put you in the 5% of matches that that happens for. Are you really willing to wait that long? But they didn't say anything. So we didn't realize we were shooting for the moon. We knew we were like narrowing it, you know, somewhat, but we didn't realize just how much we were narrowing it. And I'm just like, okay, God, maybe that's because we were meant to wait. We were meant to wait until this time. We were meant to wait for this match. This was the surrogate we were meant to have. Um, Or, you know, there there could have been an issue for us that we were being protected from. Maybe all of these other babies are protected in their, you know, scenario. Um... I think ignorance led us to our right match. So when we get this match in, I think it was October, we said, if it's within a four or five hour driving radius, then we'll say yes. And if it's not, we will be more patient. So we opened it up. We felt a total yes about the profile overall, but they were very far away. It was like a 15 hour drive or something like that. And so we said to the match coordinator, everything else about this match, totally a thumbs up. And so we were really encouraged too. Like this was a great match. We felt so connected. Like this is what we're going to get next time. We're just willing to be a little bit more patient, you know? And, and by now we're at the front of the list. So it won't be that much longer, but months go by. It's now on January 15, we say, okay, if we don't have any word by January, by February 15, 
we'll discuss expanding our radius. And the plan was if we don't have a match by March 1, then we will expand what we think, but we're going to like talk about it. We're like, let's not worry about it now because we could get a match tomorrow. Let's set a date at which to have that conversation, but it's not quite time to have the conversation yet, which by the way, I just highly recommend in life. You don't have to debate things before it's time to actually make a decision um, and trust that the piece will come at the time. So we circle it on our wall calendar. I have this big wall calendar in my um, office, but we get so busy. We, we forget to have the conversation. I'm not looking at my calendar. It is now the last day of February and I am having a complete meltdown. Um, all of November, December, I was hiring for my company. One big role I've shared before quit on January 2nd before they even began. I've now been trying to replace that person before I had someone who kind of had a, a, a personal crisis breakdown. They quit in November, December. So I'd been doing two jobs in November, December. Now I'm doing two jobs in January, February. I am exhausted. There is construction happening in our building that makes it sound like there is a jackhammer in our apartment. You never know what time it will start. You never know what time it will stop. You never know how long it will go on. I cannot think straight. I cannot work. I can't figure out how to record podcast episodes and host webinars and teach live classes. And like, I am losing it. So this day is like my, you know, that final straw day. I am wandering around my neighborhood trying to figure out wh where else can I, can I work? Do I need to check into a hotel? Do I need to fly somewhere for the week? Like I just, uh, it's been weeks of this where I feel like I just can't get any quiet and I'm like having a mental breakdown. So I am sitting in the Hoxton Hotel in Williamsburg near the bathrooms. It's like weird little seat crying when I check my email for something in work and I see that we have a match. And I, it was not on my radar. I hadn't been thinking about it. I hadn't been checking my email. Every once in a while it would occur to me. I wonder if we have a match. I should check my email. And then days would go by where I wouldn't think about it. I had not been thinking about it. I was so stressed. And I'm like, we gave God until February 28. And on February 28, we got word. And we had not told our match coordinator this, by the way. It was not like we said to her, you know, you've got until March 1. She had no idea about that. So we decided to wait until the next morning to look at it because it was just such a hard day. I didn't want to bring all that negative energy into it. We're totally expecting that this is our person. Like we set up the camera to film ourselves. And it was just a no. Like it was just an instant gut no that I didn't expect because they send you a sample profile when you're first with the agency. And then we got that first match. And both of those have been like, okay, great. I've listened to all these podcast episodes. I've heard so many surrogates. Like I'm not really thinking this is going to be hard for me to feel connected to someone. And they're just, there was just nothing. I, there was, there was nothing we had in common that I could like grab onto it all. And that just made it feel so transactional. I just felt like I would be hiring this person and that just isn't how I had felt with the first match. It felt like, ooh, our two families are coming together. It's not how I felt listening to the podcast episodes. Like we just could see it with the first match, her husband, their kid, like, I don't know, their kid was a ginger, like just different little things that we had in common and we just couldn't hear. And I 
was so frustrated. I was so frustrated at myself. I was like, I chose the wrong agency. I should have done more work on what regions they get the most applicants from. I was so dumb not to look into this more. I should have gotten on the wait list at two agencies. We should have found a way to get more money to get on more wait lists. Like I'm just really feeling like I have done this whole process wrong. I've wasted 16 months of our life. Like I'm just, I'm beside myself. And we get on with our match coordinator. We explain all of this. I'm just, I'm very frank because you got to be honest in this process. I was like, this isn't, I'm going to express anger. It's not towards you personally, but this is where I feel like the process. She was like, it's totally fine. I get it. And I was like, I feel so frustrated that we've waited 16 months and this is the quality of match we're getting. I feel like we made a mistake. She says, let me do another deep dive. See if there's anyone coming down the path like that's in the system, but they just haven't got to me yet. Um, so hold tight. This is Wednesday, March 1. She says, give me the weekend. On Monday, she sends us, a, a, she, we get on a Zoom with her actually. And we talk a little bit more through. She talks us through this person, why they're earlier on in the process and shows us their profile. And Jeremy and I just get emotional. Like we're, we're like, I, this feels like our person. Um, and I've heard people say that in adoption stories where, I mean, also Charlotte says it in Sex in the City. Do you remember when she sees the photo with Harry and she's like, that's our baby. But I've heard other people say that, that like they, they opened up an adoption photo and were like, that, that's our baby. That's, that's, that's how I felt about our surrogate. Like I was like, this, this is our, our person. And so we schedule a call with her work schedule in the medical field, it's super late at night for us for how early we go to bed. So this is Wednesday, March 8th. And I have a video um, I'll, I'll maybe share at some point of us like in the bathroom getting ready where I'm like asking Jeremy, I'm like, what are you going to wear? What should I wear? Like it's a, you're making a first impression, right? Like it's a date. I mean, you don't want to be too, too fancy and it's like, 9.30 at night, but also like you don't want to seem too casual and like you aren't taking this seriously. Like what's the appropriate thing? So we get on with her and the match coordinator. It's like all of us on Zoom and it just goes so well. We get off the call and we're just like, this was it. Like this feels right. We're crying. We're like taking selfies together. We're totally like this, this is our person. Um, she shares our faith. She has a cat. Uh, she's just so sweet and warm and both sides really express that our main goal is trust and the other party having a positive experience. And we just really want that, you know, for each other. And so the next morning, Thursday, March 9th, we are up early. We're finishing the Elegant Excellence Journey website, which Jeremy was building for our launch. It was just one of those ways that we were saving money for the surrogacy by him working a second job so that we can afford this instead of my hiring someone as I usually do. We finish the website. He gets on a plane. He's going to go ski with his dad and uh, his brother Aaron and his brother-in-law. And while he's on the plane, the site disappears. Um, if you were in my Instagram community, then you followed along this journey. I'm staying calm. I'm like, there's no way that the site just disappeared. My marketing director is like, I don't want to panic anyone, but the site is gone. I'm like, what do you mean the site is gone? I'm like, it's going to be fine. Like Jeremy lands at like seven or eight o'clock. He's going to be able to figure it out. There's just something that we're missing. He is in the back of a van with his brother-in-law who works at um, Shopify. They're getting online. They're like, no, it's gone. Like the whole website has just been deleted. No one has been in there, but I wasn't even in there. 
other than my marketing director, who's like highly experienced. Like you, you have to do a lot to delete a site in there. It makes absolutely no sense. Literally to this day, we don't understand how it happened. So it's seven or eight o'clock. He's in the back of a car trying to go pick up ski gear, getting online with his brother-in-law, seeing what he can figure out. When they get to Aaron's apartment, we get on an emergency meeting with my team at like nine or 10 o'clock at night, the night before the launch. And when I'm texting him the Zoom link for that, I'm like, also, she said yes. We, we have a surrogate. You only have 24 hours to say yes after the match. So it was like, we had to hear, she had to hear. So I'm like giving him this like high, high, low, low news at the same time. He misses that part of my text because so much is going on. He's around family. He's trying to get on. He's getting the Zoom. Like he, he doesn't realize until later that night. I'm like, did you see, by the way, when I said she said yes? He was like, wait, what? So Jeremy skis that weekend in what will become one of the most important trips of his life for his family, but we don't know that yet. We work all week on the site. And a week after that ski trip on Sunday, March 19th, his youngest brother, Aaron, who's 26 at the time, is in a mountain biking accident. And on Tuesday, March 21st, we learn on a all-family Zoom, Jeremy has eight siblings. Um, I've never seen all the siblings on a Zoom at the same time in our entire relationship. Um, On an all-family Zoom, that Aaron has a 1% to 2% chance of getting out of a wheelchair. And anyone who's gotten a diagnosis... I mean, you just never forget that conversation. And two days later, we relaunched the website. And two weeks later, his family asks me to post on social media because we're looking for housing and resources and just, just trying to all of a sudden overnight in two weeks figure out what is life with a paraplegic and how are we doing this. So I do that post. Uh, I was supposed to do it on Sunday, but we couldn't get into the GoFundMe account to like give an update. So I wait until they get in and I post on Monday, April 3rd. I've never shared something like that um, on social and I am not expecting the amount of response. I, I'm just overwhelmed and I end up spending all day instead of working, just fielding hundreds of DMs and realizing I should create a spreadsheet to get everything to the family. And I'm trying to pass on resources and find Airbnbs and find doctor recommendations, all these things. And I only stop because that night we meet our surrogate and her mom for the first time. They come to our home for dinner. It just so happened that her period fell at the perfect time. And she was here so fast after matching for her medical checkup. It's like, if it had been a couple days later, this would have all happened a month later. But just the way things fell, it was like, okay, well, you'll be there in two weeks. So she comes, we meet her. We're not telling our family, by the way, any of this at the time. My family knew, I haven't thought to say this up until this point, but my family knew when we were doing the egg freezing and the IVF, they knew we were planning to use a surrogate, but I just didn't want to drag them along this like excruciating weight. You know, it just kind of makes everything seem more dull when you're like, any update, any update, any update. And then by the time you get to the update, you're like, oh, thank God. Rather than like, wait, what? What's happening? Um, And Jeremy's family, most of them didn't really even know that we'd been through this process. So we're not telling our family anything at this point. So while we're trying to do all of this stuff for Aaron, we're not telling anyone that simultaneously we are like in this wild surrogacy journey that's happening suddenly at lightning speed while we're trying to 
juggle things in the business and having all these tech issues. So three weeks later, we go to Salt Lake City for a week where Aaron is to uh, in a re- rehabilitation hospital to give Jeremy's parents and sister a break for the week as his primary caregivers. On the way to the airport, we rush to get our paperwork notarized as the next step in the process. We literally meet this sweet couple with three-year-old twins in the park. She's like a local notary. He, ha- We have to have two signatures on it. He goes and finds another, da- another dad friend walking in the park. They're like, we can probably go over to the playground. We know people there. We'll find someone. Brings this other guy over to like notarize paperwork for us. You have to sign so many things. These people had to sign like 25 times on all this paperwork. There's three, there's two three-year-olds running around. One of them is screaming the whole time. The other one, this little boy named Luca with long, dark brown hair, climbs up into my lap unprompted and just snuggles me the whole time. I was like, okay, this is the best legal experience of my life. But then we've got to rush off to the airport. That week in Salt Lake, then we leave the hospital to go overnight documents. Um, We're just rushing to get everything ready so we don't delay anything on our end. We are hoping for a June transfer, really because we're seeing family in July. And I want to be able to do our baby announcement in person. The surrogacy agency knows this. Our doctor knows this. But we also know it's not likely. July is probably the soonest it can happen. So I'm thinking July while, meanwhile, jumping on every email that we get to move it along. And the clearance comes back sooner than they said it would, around mid-May. And I, we're like so thrilled. We're so excited. We're like, oh my gosh, it's happening. It's like happening just like we wanted it to. And then it, all of a sudden, I'm on the treadmill one night and I do the math on when her periods are and I realize that our transfer will be the day after I launch what makes women feel beautiful in June the biggest product I've ever created I send a video to my team basically having a giggling panic attack from the treadmill in the gym as I realized this to my like two main team members. I am in shock. I can't stop repeating. How, how did I not see this? <laughs> I just, I, I don't know how I didn't realize this. Like I just, I just don't know how I didn't see this. But they told us it was unlikely to be June. It was more likely to be July, August, September even. So I just hadn't mentally laid the two calendars over each other. And now my mind is frantic. Jeremy was like, are you having more of a meltdown because they're at the same time or because it's hidden, you didn't realize it? And I, initially I was like, that I didn't realize it. Like I'm so detail oriented. I'm so on top of things. I've been so vigilant in this surrogacy process. I'm so vigilant in my business. I mean, so vigilant in helping your family. Like how, how did I miss something this huge? I just didn't put all the calendars literally overlaid together. You know, like those clear overlays. Anyways, I just like didn't put them all together. So now my mind is frantic. Like, can I schedule a webinar for that day? When will we know what time the transfer is? Can we do both in a day? How emotional is that day going to be? Can we do both in a week? Like, will I regret not being more present for it? If I'm doing a night webinar, can I even see her for dinner when she's in town? Like, I just like, I'm spiraling. And I'm like, of all the weeks in the year, how are these happening in the same 24 hours? So Jeremy and I spend the weekend debating, deciding if we should push it back a month, doing the math one zillion times and Googling the entire arc range of every single possibility of what day our surrogate's period could come in June or July to figure out if we push it a month, 
are we then sure it won't fall on the four days we're out of town on vacation with my family in July? That is the, like, oh no, there actually was a time, sorry, the only other thing we had, we had like four things this year. We have the journal, I'm sorry, the What Makes Women Feel Beautiful launch, trip with my parents, my family, and two weddings. And there is another video I have where I am losing it that it might come on, her, her period might come on the weekend of my friend Laura's wedding. And I'm like, so it just was like, how is everything happening all at once? And this trip with my family, it's, we only do it once a year. It's already scheduled and paid for. It's expensive for my parents. I don't get to see my family very often living on the West and East Coast. I would be devastated to miss this. So should I just accept the most insane week of my life in June rather than risk missing this experience with my family in July? Ultimately, we decide we'll wait until July. We talk to our surrogate. I'm like, oh, my heart breaks that I have to like tell you we're delaying. I knew she would be fine, but I just hate having to be like, hey, we're going to like make a preference call that we want to wait on this. I didn't want her to think we weren't excited and ready to move forward. She was completely understanding. I go through all of this. This is Thursday and Friday and Saturday and Sunday. While, mind you, emailing on Friday to the clinic to ask them a zillion questions about this and explaining, here's why I'm panicking in June, blah, 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 blah. They write back all these details. Then on Monday morning, they send an email, the same person who emailed me on Friday and says, the IVF clinic closes in June for maintenance. So it's not an option anyways. Like doesn't even acknowledge, why did you not tell me this on Friday? Why did you make me crazy all weekend? So from social media, you know the timeline from here. We transfer in July, got to tell our parents. So they're part of the excitement of waiting for the transfer, which actually turned out to be so much more fun to have them know ahead of the transfer. And I am so grateful that God had a better plan and timeline than I did. And every time God's plan is better than mine in this, I'm like, okay, then like I got to put that in my faith bank, right? That like he knows what he's doing. However, I said there were two final emotions that I wanted to share as we close. And and I know I've said that like we're closing like a gazillion times. Um, and like a, a, it's like at church when the pastor just keeps going. The first emotion is this. I have hated the admin part of this experience. There are so many examples I could share with you going back to 2021 and looking to find agencies. And there have been so many parallels to the lack of respect and disorganization I felt in my publishing experience from 2021 to 2022, alongside the lack of respect and disorganization in the fertility experience, 2021 to 2023. If you are new and you didn't hear my nightmare as a first time author, I will link that series in the description. But I have been into entirely unrelated stories with so much of the same trauma compounding of feeling like I'm doing this for the first time. Almost everyone you're working with is doing this for the first time. Meanwhile, you have decades of experience and this is literally the one product you ship, as we say in the business world. You do books and you do babies. So how do you not have a clear project management template for making this not traumatic and crazy making and leaking so much time, money, and energy from the very person 
who is paying or making you so much money. And this is also a really big theme of the book nightmare that I didn't include at the time in that series that I just referenced because I wasn't quite ready to share about our fertility journey. But everyone involved in my book story was a parent. And they all knew we were waiting until we had a pub date to move forward with a baby because I wanted to cherish both experiences. I didn't want to miss out on the precious first few months of a maternity leave, especially knowing we're only going to have one in the baby stage because of work. So I was willing to be patient on the baby to make sure they didn't buy for my attention. And so for example, when I was on my third editor, I sent them a personal video since we hadn't met, had a Zoom, had a call, anything, letting them know about our fertility journey and why I was willing to work as hard as needed to not have my pub date pushed. And that's really why, in hindsight, I ended up in such a bad situation in the publishing industry because I was just so determined this can't get delayed. Like, I I will keep working hard. I was just so laser focused on this is going to happen and then the baby. And so if I get discouraged here or I'm like, you know what? I just can't afford this. I'm going to go back to my business for a season. Let's push this a year. I knew that that was pushing the baby. And so the two traumas also are intertwined because why are we so scared financially right now because of the book trauma? How did we get into that with the book trauma? Partially because we were trying to prioritize the baby. So it's really just like a mind fork altogether. So I send them this video saying, here, I want to privately share where we're at in our fertility journey, why I was willing to work so hard to make sure that the pub date didn't get pushed. I will do whatever it takes. Like I will pull all-nighters, whatever. They didn't reply to the email. They didn't acknowledge it. And so a handful of days, a week later, my project manager follows up on the email. Hey, confirming that you got this. And they just reply, that pub date is gone. Zero acknowledgement that what they were saying is you're going to have to wait another year for a baby and I know that and I'm a parent too and I'm so sorry that I have to be the one that, that breaks that news to you. The lack of humanity was just so arresting to me because these are the same people who had to navigate these choices in their careers. When do you have a baby, take a maternity leave as a career professional? And they couldn't even include the line, I know this is going to be so disappointing to hear. Again, if you are on a surrogacy journey now or in the future, I do hope to share some YouTube videos with the granular details you'll relate to in this process. But I cannot wait to be done dealing with agencies. So I'm not sure if that's totally done around the first trimester when we switch to our OB or if with a surrogate pregnancy, it really will be there through the birth. Is there going to be more of this of like having to deal with the hospital, not knowing how to handle surrogate, you know, uh, births? I'm not sure. But a parental leave season for my family next spring also means we are free. It is just us, no more agencies, just our little family for the first time in three years at that point. So the final thing I will share truly briefly, though I could go into so much more detail on this, is how lonely this journey has felt. I shared in last week's episode how 
supportive Jeremy has been, but that in being supportive, it was really, this is your call, Hillary. Like it's, it's your body. It's your, like, I will follow your lead on this. So it really was me making those calls throughout our embryo uh, journey. It was definitely us together deciding that we wanted to have children, but whether or not to move forward with more embryo, um, IVF rounds, whether or not to do surrogacy, it really was him saying like, I, I feel like I need to defer to you on this. So it really was just me and God. And I didn't know anyone to turn to, even people sharing online. Like I said, that's why I hope to post those videos because it was just snippets. Like I just, I was so hungry for more. And that's even why this is one of the longest podcast episodes I'm sure I've ever done. But my heart here really is first and foremost for the woman going through surrogacy or for the friend, mom, sister who knows someone going through surrogacy to just be like, there are not a lot of these really in-depth play-by-play stories. And again, it's a fraction of all of it. But that fear of judgment was so heavy for so much of it, feeling like no other friend I'd had become a parent had that. No, no one could relate to that. I, I had to make a decision whether or not to do surrogacy and no other friend that I had really had, had had to make a decision along those lines. And I felt like there must be advice somewhere on how to make this decision, but I couldn't find that anywhere. It's so intense to actually make this choice to have someone else carry your child to know that they're doing that electively to know that they're giving you this huge gift like especially if you are a deep thinker or feeler as I am again I think the adage of like oh that must be nice you know I I really think if you were in the position you would realize how hard it actually is to accept that gift of life. It isn't just like, oh, phew, I don't have to do that. It's like, my God, someone else is doing this for us. Like the more miserable you were in pregnancy, the more you're like, that is the sacrifice someone else is willing to make for a stranger. Like it's just, it's so humbling. It's so existential to... Except, so Julie asked, how can women who do not have fertility issues connect with their friends who do? What can we say to be present without sounding like a complete jerk and at the same time wanting to be joyful about our own pregnancy? And Julie, I love the heart behind this question, though I also think this is if you aren't pregnant, if you have older kids, if you're single, if you aren't sure you want kids, you just aren't in that same season as them to really be down in the trenches. I think it's just asking, how are you feeling lately around fill in the blank? Like any good friend goes back to things that their friends have shared before and hasn't brought up in a couple of weeks or months. You know, whatever happened with, have you had any more thoughts about? It's a life experience just like any other. And I think with anything, we can ask whatever someone's walking through, what do you feel like most people don't understand about fill in the blank, or what's been the hardest part of this you weren't expecting, or what advice would you give to someone else going through this? And I want to highlight, those are all questions. They aren't advice, so you don't have to know what to say. You just ask so they can speak, and you don't have to have advice when they do speak. 
You can just reply things like, that's so complicated. That sounds so hard. I'm sorry you're carrying all of that. You're just validating their experience. Or I'd never thought about that. That's a really good point. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing. You're just showing interest in their experience. And then an open-ended, well, I know I can't relate. We're not in the same season, but if you ever want to process, vent, whatever, I am so here. Send me a voice message. I'm so happy to hold space. I don't have to give advice back, et cetera. And if you are feeling lonely in this, I also, or really in anything, that you're like, oh, well, Hillary, they're asking, how can you be supported in infertility? But I'm wanting to know, I'm wishing my friends would ask how to support me as a single mom. I'm wishing my friends would ask how to support me through cancer. I'm wishing my friends would ask how to support me through the the death of my spouse. If you are feeling lonely, I would also encourage you, as I have myself, to remember that everyone has stuff they're going through. Everyone else in your life. And that I don't catch, highlight, remember, circle back on, celebrate, track on everything, day, date, experience, storyline for every friend of mine. Because we're all busy. Our lives are full. And so probably everyone feels lonely sometimes in some of their things. And I think that that in and of itself can help us to be like, I'm not more isolated because I'm going through this thing other people can't relate to, I'm sure another friend of mine is feeling isolated because she's struggling in her marriage but doesn't want to say anything and so isn't talking to anyone. Like there's other people actually that are feeling this isolation, feeling this loneliness, wishing someone would reach out and say the same thing. And so while I want more community and support for us all for sure, I will also say that it made me rely more on God whatever your belief is there, like in inner wisdom, in believing I have the answers for myself, for my family, that I can keep myself safe and healthy mentally. And again, I think this is a deeper conversation for another episode, but I think turning so inward or upward, however you think about it, because there wasn't anyone outward that I could go to, cultivated the faith and trust that led to so much peace in our two-week wait and now so far in this early pregnancy. So maybe you not having anyone to ask advice on as to whether or not you should leave that relationship is actually what allows you to leave it in such peace because you fought so hard to get the answer for yourself and truly you're the only one that could know the really right answer for you. So that is where we are early on in this pregnancy. In two long episodes, I shared a six-year journey with the hope that it gives you more empathy and understanding, whether for yourself or others, and becomes one of the episodes I would have loved to have found over the years and pays it forward for all of the episodes that did bless me so much. And final question, Janine asked, will you keep a running list of the dumb things people say out of their ignorance so the rest of us won't repeat them? And honestly, Janine, there is only one that is my far and away top issue that I want to beg us to stop asking, and it is not even just about IVF, but every single pregnancy. 
and it's a whole other conversation. So that's what we'll talk about in next week's episode. You're welcome in advance. Oh, wait. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately, if you are new to the You're Welcome podcast, this is the time each week when I share maybe a TV show, a book, an experience, something just sort of like fun, light girlfriend chat. But this episode, I think maybe has been my longest episode ever. So I'm just going to keep this week short and sweet. And the TV show and the book that I wanted to tell you about, I'm going to save until next week and just say, something I'm loving lately is our little poppy seed. Obviously, that's above everything else. And if I can also say thank you in advance, I would be so honored if you would leave a review and share this episode somewhere or with someone. It makes such a difference and my heart is truly to help and reach more people. So if you think this could help even one person, please take a moment to leave a review. Think of a friend that you could text it to, a Facebook group that you're in, share it on Instagram stories with your uh, friends and audience tag me I would love to see what stood out and spoke to you and I will see you over there on Instagram and then back here for the next you're welcome Wednesday with grace and gumption till next Wednesday 